What if I told you that many of the problems we're dealing with in 21st century America were even worse during Teddy Roosevelt's time and that he defeated most of them? What are these problems that were so similar back when Roosevelt became president in 1901? Rising economic inequality due to massive technological change. Vicious partisan hatred between Republicans and Democrats. Institutionalized corruption at all levels of government. Shameless partisan media that was thinly disguised propaganda. Entrenched geographic separation between the parties. Distant wars that required America's attention. A few extremely rich oligarchs who seemed to control everything. The aptly named robber barons, some of whom controlled 90% of their industry. And yet, Teddy Roosevelt, whose own party establishment never even wanted him to be president, defeated most of it and gave America his famous square deal that launched the American century. How did this happen? How did he do it? What can we learn from what he did to overcome these same challenges today? I'm Rob Cohen. Physician, Army veteran, scientist, and your host. This is Demo Crises. Democracy, Demography, and Demoralization. Now, Teddy Roosevelt was a Republican, but he was no toe-the-line, follow-the-leader, partisan hack. No, he was a maverick. He led with patriotism first rather than mindlessly adhering to the dicta of his party, which was often toxic as it is now. A century after Teddy Roosevelt's success in trust-busting and securing the square deal for Americans that helped launch the American century, another Republican stood up to the orthodox members of his own party to fight corruption and the other great challenges of the time. That person was Senator John McCain. The parallels between these two men are often noted casually, but in fact, they are stunning. They were the same rank in the military. They were both war heroes. They were both named after their father, They were both stridently anti-corruption, passing campaign finance legislation. Their Republican nemesis was a fossil fuel senator from the banks of the Ohio River, Senator Mark Hanna of Lisbon, Ohio, during Teddy Roosevelt's time, and Mitch McConnell of Louisville, Kentucky, today. And so much more, which we'll get into. McCain and Teddy were both mavericks, and they fought their insurgency against both Democrats and Orthodox Republicans with superhuman strength and courage. But there is one major difference in this historical case of deja vu. Teddy Roosevelt won, but John McCain lost. At least right now in 2018, it seems that way. But perhaps his fight isn't over yet. Teddy Roosevelt developed the toughness needed for his later fights through excruciating tests early in life. He overcame debilitating childhood asthma through incessant commitment to physical fitness beginning at age 11, per his father's instructions. Quote, Theodore, you have the mind but not the body. You must make your body. Teddy's father was his idol, his best friend, and so he took those words to heart and slowly through time, through exercise and hard work, he overcame his asthma. After conquering his asthma as a teenager and gaining admission to Harvard, he proposed to his first wife, who rejected him, and kept his proposal at bay for six months, till she finally accepted. Then, his beloved father fell ill with cancer. But since he was well enough, he encouraged Teddy to go back to school. So Teddy did, but eventually his family sent urgent word to return home as his father's condition worsened. Theodore Sr. died the night before Teddy made it home. Compounding Teddy's grief over the loss was the guilt that he hadn't been present to comfort his father in his final days, as his father had for him during his many health battles as a child. Six years later, Teddy's wife and mother died from illness on the same day, Valentine's Day, 1884. His profound grief reverberates in the single line he wrote in his diary that night. Quote, The light has gone out in my life. Teddy channeled his grief into nonstop action in pursuit of justice. 
working at a frenetic pace from which he would never relent. Elected to the New York State Assembly out of law school at age 23, he immediately began to threaten the entrenched corruption in both the Republican and Democratic state parties. He gained national prominence when he brought attention to a group of men who had bribed a judge to issue false statements about the city's elevated railway and drive it into bankruptcy. Then, once the stock price sank low enough, all these men bought out the stock for themselves. And then the judge issued another ruling and the stock price shot back up. Teddy wouldn't stand for that. He railed against it on the floor of the statehouse and gained prominence and praise from both sides for his eloquence and courage to confront a system of entrenched corruption where brazen behavior infected all sides. Seven years later, as civil service commissioner for Republican President Benjamin Harrison, a previously unheralded position with the glorious duty of staffing the federal bureaucracy, he railed against a partisan system in which, quote, each party profited by the offices when in power, and when in opposition, each party insincerely denounced its opponents for doing exactly what it itself had done and intended to do again. Sound familiar? For example, the U.S. Post Office had long provided a ripe opportunity for corruption, graft, and patronage, no matter which party ruled. But Teddy Roosevelt charted a new course. After he investigated and released a scathing report on the corruption of the postmaster of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the postmaster resigned. That didn't usually happen. But in gaining national prominence as an anti-corruption crusader, he alienated President Harrison and many others within his own party. Fellow Republicans raised questions about his temperament. The battle lines between reformers and conservatives grew bright. After the Harrison administration, he returned to New York and began his next career as New York police commissioner. His tenure was legendary for its energy and integrity. He conducted midnight patrols in disguise and surprised police officers who were sleeping in the middle of the night when they were supposed to be on duty. If they were found asleep, they got written up and potentially fired. That had also never happened before. Police dereliction of duty and corruption decreased sharply and noticeably. After two years as police commissioner, President McKinley selected him to be Secretary of the Navy. As Teddy's star rose, he made powerful enemies, including New York Republican Party boss Thomas Platt and National Party boss Mark Hanna, who began conspiring to ensure Teddy would never be president. After heroically leading American forces to victory at the Battle of San Juan Hill in Cuba during the Spanish-American War and then being elected New York's governor, Teddy was so popular that Senators Platt and Hanna considered him an existential threat to their graft and rule. But they were smart and cunning too. So Platt and Hanna put Teddy in the one place he couldn't do them any damage, the vice presidency under William McKinley. A loyal Republican, Teddy begrudgingly accepted the VP nomination in the election of 1900. He really didn't want to because he knew he would be taking a historically marginalized office with little power and that Senator Hanna would move to secure the presidential nomination in 1904. Teddy may never have become president if President McKinley hadn't been shot by an anarchist in Buffalo in the state fair in 1901. When Roosevelt assumed power, the chasm between capital and labor threatened to rip the nation apart. That was the central issue of his time, the existential struggle that he had to overcome. Republican pro-business policy since the Lincoln administration had over the past four decades generated enormous prosperity via the Industrial Revolution and the Gilded Age. Their policy platform consistently included tariffs to protect the industrializing North, public spending on infrastructure, an antipathy to governmental regulation of all business, all of which helped nourish nascent U.S. industry. However, such unfettered capitalism predictably led to monopolies where wealth and economic power concentrated in the hands of a few robber barons. Rockefeller with oil, J.P. Morgan with banking, Carnegie with steel, Vanderbilt with railroads, for example. The working masses suffered under hard labor conditions, low wages, and long work hours. 
Democrats represented labor unions and the agrarian South, and they stridently opposed the Republicans' pro-business agenda, exacerbating a partisan and geographic divide already viciously drawn over race. Intensifying the division in the country that Teddy would lead, Republicans and Democrats had equally sized voting coalitions, yielding a string of very close elections. The election of 1876 was decided by a disputed 889 votes in South Carolina. The election of 1880 had a popular vote margin of 1,900 votes. The election of 1884 was decided by just over 1,000 votes in New York. And in 1888, Benjamin Harrison won the Electoral College despite losing the popular vote. Such narrowness of victory would not repeat until George W. Bush, fittingly for our purposes in this episode, won the 2000 election by a disputed 537 votes in Florida. Adding still more tinder to the cauldron that Teddy would inherit, irresponsible media bias, both sensational yellow journalism and openly partisan newspapers, made it hard for citizens to understand what was really true. One magazine editorialized that, quote, the railroad combines first to rob the country of millions and then to use a portion of this fund stolen from the people to corrupt the sources of information and thus try to perpetuate their robbery through a blinded public opinion. Sound familiar? To top it all off, governmental corruption ran rampant at all levels. The battle between labor and capital at the end of the 19th century was like a boiling pot, rife with abuses on all sides. The dispute frequently erupted into violence, such as the Homestead Strike of 1892 when the Carnegie Steel Company hired mercenaries to fight strikers outside Pittsburgh, or the National Pullman Strike of 1894 that left dozens dead. Such tension would provide the first major test of Teddy Roosevelt's administration, the Pennsylvania Coal Strike of 1902. President Roosevelt approached divisive issues by trying to forge compromise rather than hold hard to his party's orthodoxy. He famously gave speeches that laid out charitable arguments for both sides before offering a moderate solution that incorporated the best ideas of both. Imagine that. For example, in his first State of the Union address of 1901, as the cauldron boiled, he tried to lead the nation toward that elusive middle road. The captains of industry who have driven the railway system across the continent, who have built up our commerce, who have developed our manufactures, have on the whole done a great job to our people. Yet it remains true there have been abuses connected with the accumulation of wealth. To strike with ignorant violence at the monopolies endangers the interests of all. And yet it is also true that practical efforts must be made to correct those evils. To resolve the Pennsylvania coal strike, he invited both union leaders and business titans to negotiate with him in Washington, D.C., an unprecedented and risky action should it fail. He scored a decisive breakthrough in the fall of 1902, just as winter set in and northerners needed coal. The workers and mine owners each won concessions in the agreement, including a 10% wage increase and a higher price for coal, and Teddy received widespread commendation for his bold action and success. He was just starting to resolve the dispute between labor and capital in a way that benefited all Americans. On the larger issue of the monopolies, the trusts that he would eventually bust, Teddy likewise chose the bold middle ground. He rejected the problematic laissez-faire capitalism of the orthodox right as well as the socialism and union bosses of the left. Socialism at that time had real currency, Socialist candidate Eugene Debs, who had led the Pullman strike, won 3 to 6 percent of the vote in the presidential races of 1904 through 1912. Instead of partisanship, Teddy Roosevelt offered America his famous square deal, a fair chance at an economic future with neither the oppression of the trust nor the tyranny of the unions. In 1902, his attorney general brought America's first ever antitrust lawsuit against big business, the Northern Securities Company, a railway trust owned partly by Republican financier J.P. Morgan. In Congress, Teddy supported antitrust legislation, including the creation of a Department of Commerce to regulate interstate monopolies. Sensing danger in 1902, Hanna and Platt made sure that the Republicans killed that bill in committee. 
No major antitrust legislation passed Congress that year to the outrage and chagrin of the reformers. Radical Republicans called President Roosevelt timid, and the war within the Republican Party had reached peak intensity. The outcome was totally unclear. Incensed, Hannah growled, That damn cowboy is president! Hannah alone had feared the chance of a President Roosevelt when he schemed with Platt at the convention, considering Vice President Roosevelt as simply the least bad option. Roosevelt's State of the Union address in December 1902 was conciliatory, indicating his awareness that the country wasn't ready for his solution yet. But this apparent contrition, although it disappointed the reformers, was just political savvy. Teddy never surrendered. He only regrouped. In January of 1903, just a month later but a new year and a new era, Teddy got some help from an unexpected place, the media. An investigative magazine called McClure's published a series of articles exposing the corruption of the monopolies, local governments, and unions using stories the American people could understand. Its low price also made it accessible to the majority of Americans, which was not previously the case. The article that destroyed the monopolies in the court of public opinion exposed the abusive practices of the Standard Oil Trust and its founding figure, John D. Rockefeller. It was written by investigative journalist Ida Tarbell, who before women could even vote, became the most famous woman in America. In her article, Tarbell laid out the corrupt and illegal rebates that Standard Oil had negotiated with the railroad companies. Through these rebates, Standard Oil benefited from lower shipping costs than, for instance, the little oil guy in Pennsylvania who was just trying to earn a living. Then, Standard Oil would use its monopoly power to undercut the little guy, buy them out, and only then jack up the price. It was corrupt, unfair, and cut straight into the heart of the American entrepreneur. But with her article, Ida Tarbell exposed the abusive practices of the monopolies and their collusion and put a single word, rebate, and a face, that of Rockefeller, as the memorable moniker of the abusive trusts. Other articles in this famous issue of McClure's included exposés of the corruption of the Minneapolis mayor and the criminally abusive labor unions of Pennsylvania. McClure's left no party or interest unscathed. Their enemy was malfeasance and their purpose was truth. It was a quaint and yet radical idea. According to historian Doris Kearns Goodwin, the January 1903 issue of McClure's generated such public outcry that later that year the same Republican Congress was forced by their newly informed constituents to pass all three of Teddy's signature antitrust proposals. And while Mark Hanna was planning to challenge Teddy for the 1904 nomination, he conveniently died in February of that year. The next year, he won his lawsuit against the Northern Securities Company, and it became the first of dozens of trusts that he and his successor would break up. You name the industry, there was a trust associated with it. Whether sugar or oil or beef or steel or tobacco, Teddy broke him up and became known as the trust buster. He also passed signature legislation, such as the creation of the Food and Drug Administration and even the nation's first campaign finance law in 1907. In 1909, his chosen successor won an antitrust lawsuit against Standard Oil, breaking it into 34 companies. And you've heard of some of them, Exxon, Mobil, Chevron, others. Teddy Roosevelt promised America a square deal, and he passed it over the resistance of his own party and the Democrats, and quite frankly, the momentum of the time. His square deal was the right medicine for the challenges of his day, and the rest is the economic history of the 20th century. Towards the end of the American century that Teddy launched, however, the old issues of inequality and massive technological change brought a familiar dilemma to the Republican Party and the United States. The heir to Teddy Roosevelt's maverick streak was Senator John McCain of Arizona, 
who found himself fighting against the corruption and stubborn inertia of his own party as it became clear that the Reagan orthodoxy that had generated new prosperity needed updating. Like Teddy, McCain was a media-savvy war hero, environmentalist, reformer, and loyal Republican who nevertheless frequently stood against his own party when their policies betrayed the national interest. He was born to a naval family in 1936 in the Panama Canal Zone, fortuitously because Teddy Roosevelt built that canal. McCain's formative test came early in life at age 31 when he was shot down over Vietnam, breaking three limbs upon impact in the middle of Hanoi. His Vietnamese captors soon discovered that his father, Admiral John McCain Jr., was commander-in-chief of the U.S. Pacific Command, giving him responsibility over all naval assets in Vietnam. In return for a propaganda win, the Vietnamese offered Lieutenant Commander McCain early release, and he famously turned down the offer. Because in the military, we have a code. The first one in is the first one out. And there were other prisoners who had been there longer. Some of them were pallbearers at his funeral. The Vietnamese threatened terrible treatment if he refused, but he refused anyway. And the Vietnamese carried out their threat. They bound McCain's broken arms behind his back and beat him every two hours. He was placed in solitary confinement for two years and attempted suicide twice. Eventually, he broke and signed a written confession. Every man has a breaking point, but few are forced to confront it. After returning from Vietnam in 1973, McCain rose to the rank of captain, the analogous rank in the Navy to Colonel Teddy Roosevelt, and served as the Navy's liaison to the Senate. Around that time, with the nation suffering the stagflation of high inflation, high taxes, and high unemployment, along with foreign policy humiliations like the Iran hostage crisis and recent communist victories in Vietnam, Cambodia, and Nicaragua, a new Republican giant rose to prominence offering Morning in America on the back of a simple program of large tax cuts and military buildup. It worked, and as John McCain says, he enlisted as a foot soldier in the Reagan Revolution, winning a seat in Congress in 1982. John McCain proved a reliable Republican vote, first in the House and then in the Senate in 1986. The 1980s and 1990s unleashed a flood of new prosperity in America, as Reaganomics proved the right medicine for the time. Just as Lincoln's Republican economic agenda unleashed new prosperity in the 1860s, Reagan and his successor also finally brought down the Soviet Union. Reaganism gained many fans. By the year 2000, however, the Republican Party found itself in the same policy dilemma it had faced a hundred years prior. The new prosperity unleashed by two decades of competent government and laissez-faire economics created a booming economy, a budget surplus, and new industries, but also widening inequality, loss of manufacturing jobs to globalization and automation, and the impending retirement of the baby boomers. Meanwhile, chaos reigned in defeated Russia, which defaulted on its debt in 1998, triggering a worldwide financial crisis, and installed KGB apparatchik Vladimir Putin as president in 1999. This development was momentously important for the new century, though McCain was among the few who realized it. For the 2000 presidential nomination, the Republican leadership had mostly coalesced around Texas Governor George W. Bush as the frontrunner. As the son of a former president and governor of a large state, he seemed a logical choice. There was just one problem. Bush probably wasn't up to the job. Commentators derided him as an empty suit lacking the intellectual chops to be president. That would prove mostly true. Despite joining the Texas Air National Guard in 1968, while McCain was tied up in the Hanoi Hilton, Bush never served in Vietnam. And his policy proposals simply recapitulated the Republican orthodoxy of the 1980s, with major tax cuts for the rich and deregulation that would not address the looming issues of inequality or Social Security insolvency. It was just like when Republicans of the early 1900s refused to move against the growing problem of monopolies. While the top marginal tax rate when Reagan took power was an unreasonable 70%, in 2000, it was a much more appropriate 39.6%. The tax cuts proposed by George W. Bush simply couldn't have the same effect as before. 
Public corruption was also growing as an important issue given the scandalous Clinton years, and Bush's foreign policy credibility was sparse. So Senator McCain seized the reform platform and entered the presidential race as an underdog. Since he opposed ethanol subsidies on grounds that they are bad economic policy, he didn't bother to compete in the Iowa caucus and set his sights on winning New Hampshire. Choosing as his signature issue a more responsible tax cut and campaign finance reform, and becoming as symbiotic with the media as Roosevelt had been a century prior, he courted the votes of moderates, as he said, Independents, Democrats, Libertarians, Vegetarians, come on over, vote for me. He railed against George W. Bush's promise of tax cuts for the wealthy. I voted against the tax cuts because of the disproportional amount that went to the wealthiest Americans. I would uh, clearly support not extending those tax cuts in order to help address the, uh, the deficit. He thus staked out the moderate position on taxes and corruption against his party orthodoxy in exactly the manner of Teddy Roosevelt. He even cited Roosevelt as his ultimate hero. He crushed Bush in New Hampshire 49 to 30 percent, and the nomination became a two-man race. Bush suddenly found himself vulnerable, and the party establishment lunged at the maverick with a vengeance, just as they had done 100 years prior. The next primary, South Carolina, could decide the Republican race. South Carolina's coast had many retired military veterans making it McCain-friendly, while the religious interior favored Bush. But Bush and his top strategist Karl Rove left nothing to chance. In one of the most vile political moments of the American Republic's history, Bush supporters began spreading rumors about McCain's eight-year-old daughter. In 1992, Cindy and John McCain had adopted one-year-old Bridget from one of Mother Teresa's orphanages in Bangladesh and paid for her cleft palate surgery. Although the Bush campaign denied involvement, someone, rumored to be evangelical leader Ralph Reed's Christian Coalition or a professor at the religious Bob Jones University, somebody distributed flyers of the child all over South Carolina questioning whether Bridget was in fact McCain's illegitimate African-American daughter. And by the way, Bob Jones, founder of the eponymous university, was a friend of Teddy Roosevelt's Democratic nemesis, William Jennings Bryan. Yet another connection between our two mavericks. The Bush campaign of 2000 in South Carolina conducted push polls, where they called South Carolinians on the phone and asked who they planned to vote for in the primary. If the respondents said Bush, they simply confirmed the polling place. But if the respondents said they were leaning McCain, they asked, quote, would you be more or less likely to vote for John McCain if you knew he had fathered an illegitimate black child? McCain lost the South Carolina primary, and he was angry. McCain won the next primaries in Michigan and his home state of Arizona, setting up an all-important primary in Virginia a week before Super Tuesday, March 7, when 13 states, including delegate-rich California, New York, and Ohio, would vote. The day before the Virginia primary, McCain lost his temper with the Christian right, which had consistently voted for the immoral Bush campaign. He delivered his famous Agents of Intolerance speech, cementing his maverick status for all time, but departing from Teddy's measured savviness with a frontal assault on the Christian right. Lumping together three Christian leaders of distinct ideologies, Pat Robertson, Jerry Falwell, and Bob Jones III, McCain attempted to peel off the votes of Christian voters from their leaders and reorient the Republican Party behind his moderate agenda, just as Teddy Roosevelt had tried to do. I am a pro-life, pro-family, fiscal conservative, and advocate of a strong defense. And yet, Pat Robertson, Jerry Falwell, and a few Washington leaders of the pro-life movement call me an unacceptable presidential candidate. They distort my pro-life positions and smear the reputations of my supporters. Why? Because I don't pander to them, because I don't ascribe to their failed philosophy that money is our message. Just as we embrace working people, we embrace the fine members of the religious conservative community. But that does not mean that we will pander to their self-appointed leaders. My friends, we are building a new Republican majority 
a majority to serve the values that have long defined our party and made our country great. Social conservatives should flock to our banner. Why should you fear a candidate who believes we should honor our obligations to the old and the young? Why should you fear a candidate who believes we should first cut taxes for those who need it most? Why should you fear a candidate who shares your values? My friends, I am a Reagan Republican who will defeat Al Gore. Unfortunately, Governor Bush is a Pat Robertson Republican who will lose to Al Gore. He continued by drawing an equivalence between the leaders of the Christian right and race-baiting African-American demagogues. The political tactics of division and slander are not our values. They are, they are corrupting influences on religion and politics and those who practice them in the name of religion or in the name of the Republican Party or in the name of America shame our faith, our party, and our country. Neither party should be defined by pandering to the outer reaches of American politics and the agents of intolerance, whether they be Louis Farrakhan or Al Sharpton on the left, or Pat Robertson or Jerry Falwell on the right. Unlike Teddy Roosevelt, McCain got out in front of his party and it backfired. While polls looked close before his speech, he lost Virginia 53 to 44 percent and then lost nine of 13 states on Super Tuesday, winning only four New England states. George W. Bush piled on, said, Ronald Reagan didn't point fingers. He suspended his campaign two days later and ruled out any chance of being Bush's running mate and took his fight back to the Senate. Bush would eventually win the 2000 election by the narrowest margin in American history. The nomination contest in the Republican Party in 2000 therefore served as a battlefield both for economic ideas and also the moral direction of the Republican Party. Bush won, and the consequences of his win would be stark. In the Senate, McCain continued his maverick crusade against the Orthodox right. He channeled Teddy's fight against corruption when Teddy passed the Tillman Act, the first ever campaign finance law in 1907, and McCain co-authored his own bipartisan campaign finance reform act in 2002, a major defeat for the Republican establishment. He opposed the Bush tax cuts of 2001 and 2003 on grounds that they disproportionately benefited the wealthy while blowing up the deficit and removing badly needed resources from the military, which had just launched a two-front war in Iraq and Afghanistan. How tragically right the next decade would prove McCain. And when Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld proved tragically incompetent as he and his staff botched the Iraq war and unleashed chaos and insurgency— McCain became one of the first Republicans to publicly oppose him in 2004. As McCain pursued his maverick path, he enraged his enemies across the Republican establishment. His antagonism of radio blowhard Rush Limbaugh stands out as the epitome of their mutual antipathy. While McCain worked to undermine Bush's tax cut proposal, Limbaugh trashed McCain on his radio show as an economic lout who was just bitter over the 2000 election. Asked about this criticism, McCain responded that he viewed Limbaugh as an entertainer, a circus clown, and ignored all such criticism. Limbaugh, in turn, ratcheted up the vitriol as only he can. The battle between mavericks and conservatives was again at full boil. Later that week, Fox News host Neil Cavuto asked McCain if he wanted to apologize for calling Limbaugh a clown. McCain responded with a somber face. You know, I really regret that statement. All week, my office has been flooded with phone calls from circus clowns who are offended by the comparison. So I'd like to take this opportunity to apologize to all circus clowns in America, especially Bozo, Chuckles, and Krusty. McCain's maverick tendencies ruffled feathers within Congress as well, notably Kentucky Senator and Republican whip Mitch McConnell, among many others. McConnell's Louisville, Kentucky home lies on the same Ohio River near which Mark Hanna, Teddy Roosevelt's foe, was born and raised. 
McConnell would become McCain's nemesis on almost every issue. Immediately after President Bush signed McCain's signature campaign finance reform in 2002, McConnell immediately sued and got part of it overturned in McConnell versus Federal Election Commission in 2003. When McCain co-authored the first bipartisan bill to fight climate change, the ultimate 21st century challenge, McConnell used his whip influence to defeat it 55 to 43. Two years later, President Bush and Senator McConnell were trying to fill the judicial branch with as many conservative justices as they could, and Democrats threatened to filibuster. The Republican Senate leadership, including McConnell, threatened to abolish the judicial filibuster, which had protected minority rights since the Senate rule was implemented under Vice President Aaron Burr in 1806. Senator McCain played the maverick role yet again and foiled McConnell, at least temporarily. As we all know, this fight has continued into 2018. McCain worked with six other Republicans and seven Democratic senators to lead the Gang of 14 compromise, in which Democrats agreed not to filibuster judicial nominees except in extraordinary circumstances. McCain thus preserved the judicial filibuster and helped win confirmation for two relatively mainstream conservative justices. His Senate career included myriad other maverick moments. That was just one. For example, he opposed Republican Ted Stevens' bridge to nowhere in Alaska, and he held hearings that put Republican lobbyist Jack Abramoff in prison. The Republicans whom he confronted complained publicly about his temperament, just as Hannah had about Teddy. Despite winning these battles, however, McCain's maverick insurgency ultimately failed. In order to win his party nomination in 2008, he had to relent on most of his signature dissents. He recanted, clearly against his will, his position that Jerry Falwell was an agent of intolerance and gave the commencement address at Falwell's Liberty University. Then Falwell inconveniently died in 2007 before he could help turn out Christian conservatives for McCain. After bravely attempting but failing to pass a bipartisan immigration compromise, Republican primary voters all but abandoned him. Although he recovered through luck, determination, his war hero status, and his brave support of the Iraq surge, he found he still had to make concessions to the Republican establishment. His tax plan in 2008 was disproportionately tilted towards the wealthy, the opposite of what he had advocated in the 2000 primary and the 2001-2003 tax cuts he voted against. He had to select for his running mate a darling of conservative media, Sarah Palin, instead of his preferred choice, maverick Democratic Senator Joe Lieberman. Despite these concessions, the Republican base still didn't turn out for him in 2008. Bush's financial policies and international disasters cost McCain the election yet again. Inequality and deficits soared during the Bush administration as Bush attempted to recreate the militaristic foreign policy of the Reagan era while cutting taxes. Ultimately, the Bush administration yielded two catastrophic wars, an epic financial crisis and a more divided America. Bush's attempt to implement Reagan's policies in the 21st century simply did not work because they were no longer the right medicine. Reaganism needed reform and McCain fought for it, but not even Senator McCain could defeat the alliance of an obtuse Republican president, a cunning Senate majority whip, a powerful religious right, and an intransigent conservative media. There was no McClure's to help him, not enough brave moderates in either party, and bad luck and timing all around. In 2010, McCain watched grimly as the two justices he had helped confirm voted with a 5-4 to four majority in Citizens United versus FEC to overturn most of what remained of his signature campaign finance law. This decision even weakened the Tillman Act, passed during Teddy Roosevelt's second term, allowing corporations unlimited contributions to political advertisements as long as it did not coordinate with the candidate. Senator McConnell racked up still more victories, inventing the McConnell rule to block the Supreme Court nomination of Merrick Garland and then abolishing the filibuster to win the Supreme Court confirmation of Neil Gorsuch, the same filibuster McCain had helped preserve 10 years prior. 
McConnell then brazenly reversed the McConnell rule to confirm Bush operative Brett Kavanaugh. Backed into a corner by the Christian right, McCain voted with McConnell to abolish the judicial filibuster with, quote, great reluctance. McCain's untimely death may have given McConnell the crucial extra vote he needed to push Kavanaugh through before the midterms. McCain did score one more victory against McConnell when, shortly after brain surgery, he dramatically returned to Washington to cast the deciding vote against McConnell's purely partisan health care law in 2017. Having railed against the Democrats passing Obamacare without a single Republican vote, McCain felt, unlike McConnell, that Republicans must not do the same. He therefore resurrected Teddy's principled stance against, quote, each party insincerely denouncing its opponents for doing exactly what it itself had done and intended to do again, end quote. Still, McConnell inserted the repeal of the health insurance individual mandate in the tax bill, and it passed 51 to 48. McCain did not vote on that bill because he was still battling brain cancer in Arizona. His non-vote was a non-event, since all other Republicans, even the moderates, supported the bill despite the disastrous record of the Bush tax cuts of 2001 and 2003. The Republican establishment won again. The scene in 2018 lays bare that the 21st century version of Teddy's fight against the Republican orthodoxy went horribly wrong. President Trump is now in the White House and McCain recently passed away from brain cancer. Trump is clearly the Republican descendant of the Bush wing of the Republican Party, combining anti-intellectualism, a bullying foreign policy, shameful abasement to Russia, a hypocritical alliance with the Christian right, and irresponsible tax cuts into a monstrosity that Teddy would have abhorred. The Trump administration embodies the predictable effects of letting the refuse of the Bush administration rot in a cesspool for eight years. Trump, a narcissistic draft dodger, is the antithesis of everything McCain stood for exemplified by the absurd moment when he said he likes people who weren't captured. That that did not disqualify him from the Republican nomination reveals the deep moral bankruptcy and phony patriotism of Bush Republicanism. Jerry Falwell Jr. remains among the most loyal Trump apologists, despite the president's lifetime commitment to enjoying each of the seven deadly sins. Trump and McCain's split over Vladimir Putin is particularly emblematic. Trump's bizarre love affair with Putin recalls, at best, Bush's total naivete when he met Putin and said, I looked the man in the eye. I found it to be very straightforward and trustworthy. Uh, we had a very good dialogue. I was able to um, get a sense of his soul. As if a former KGB agent is about to show his soul to the president of the United States. Meanwhile, McCain fought Putin for decades, warning America about him as early as the South Carolina primary debate in 2000 against Bush. Putin reportedly once remarked even that, quote, my two biggest problems are Chechnya and McCain, end quote. After McCain led Congress to pass sanctions against Russia in 2012, Putin banned nine Americans from Russia, including McCain. How did we get here? Why did McCain's fight end so differently from Teddy's? A few major differences may have altered the course of history. First of all, the media, rather than sharing true information to help Americans navigate complex topics, has deteriorated past partisan propaganda and descended into spreading smears, lies, and abjectly false information. Fox News and Breitbart serve as a dystopian doppelganger for McClure's magazine, supporting the corrupt orthodoxy rather than the reformers, and no publication has emerged to reincarnate McClure's just crusade. McClure succeeded in a toxic environment, not just because of its commitment to the truth, but also because Samuel McClure built a sustainable business model, selling his magazine at a profit for only 15 cents per issue versus the typical magazine price of the time of 35 cents per issue. News organizations in the 21st century have not yet figured out how to profitably deliver difficult truths. Instead, primetime cable news coverage offers opinion hours, outrage battles, or vapid reality TV in a shameless quest for ratings. Perhaps CNN was best positioned to fill McClure's space as readily consumable and nonpartisan news 
but during these decades they abdicated their sacred duty. Even before they showed the wall-to-wall coverage of Trump's rallies in 2015 to fuel his rise, they debased themselves by devoting nearly a year of wall-to-wall coverage about conspiracy theories about Malaysia Flight 370. It is not a coincidence that the stupefaction of CNN immediately presaged Trump's rise. Teddy's story shows that, above all, America today needs a news organization or media organization to step into McClure's space. It was Sam McClure who said, quote, The vitality of democracy itself today rests upon popular knowledge of complex questions. End quote. How far we are from that ideal. Meanwhile, we citizens must step into McCain's space, or at least reward our elected officials for doing so. The symbiotic relationship between the media and the political parties may also explain why Teddy consistently had more allies in his reform struggle. While during Teddy's time, the congressional reformers formed a sizable block, today right-wing media pummel any Republican who dare stand up to orthodoxy as rhinos on the delusion that party matters more than anything, even country. Meanwhile, the Democrats offered but fleeting allegiance to McCain's maverick crusade, evidenced by their petty speeches at the 2008 convention, most notoriously, when fellow Vietnam vet John Kerry scoffed at the, quote, myth of a maverick. Only Republicans, and Democrats for that matter, with McCain's courage, grit, and gravitas can repeatedly endure the fight in this century. On these fronts so far, he was almost unique, which may explain the nation's profound grief over his death except on the far left and far right, who, of course, scorned and delighted in his death. Furthermore, McCain's battle with the Christian right does not have an obvious parallel during Teddy's time. On many similarly divisive issues, from race to tariffs, Teddy picked his battles and never moved before the nation was ready, sometimes to the frustration of progressives. McCain, for whom a fight not entered is a fight not enjoyed, showed less restraint. But since McCain did sometimes yield to his party orthodoxy, as his liberal critics frequently reminded him, perhaps this new reality reflects bleaker prospects for Mavericks in our time. Early in Teddy's career, a Berkeley professor said, quote, you can get a measure of your country by watching how far Theodore Roosevelt goes in his public career, end quote, because he expected that the corruption of the time would defeat him. That lesser men repeatedly thwarted McCain suggests he faced an even tougher landscape. So what can we learn from the different fates of these two insurgencies? We should draw inspiration from the determination that both Roosevelt and McCain showed in the face of setbacks and bad luck. We should always adhere to principle, but balance righteous zeal with the savviness that Teddy demonstrated and McCain learned only after 2000. Teddy counsels us that, quote, we must realize on the one hand that we can do little if we do not set ourselves a high ideal, and on the other, that we will fail in accomplishing even this little if we do not work through practical methods and with a readiness to face life as it is and not as we think it ought to be, end quote. The far left today shows no such savvy as they push through the same socialist policies that Eugene Debs pushed a century ago or absurd non-starters such as abolishing ICE. This extremism too has antecedents in Teddy's time, when he noted his, quote, exasperation, first with the fools who do not want any of the things that ought to be done, and second with the equally obnoxious fools who insist upon so much they cannot get anything, end quote. Maverick Democrats must therefore learn from McCain and Teddy along with the next generation of Maverick Republicans, and together they must form a sizable block, perhaps even a moderate third party. That isn't such a far-fetched idea. And Teddy again shows us the way. The Republican establishment eventually struck back against Teddy's legacy just as they did against McCain, showing us that the Maverick fight never ends. While Teddy was away in Africa, his chosen successor, William Taft, retreated enough to partisan orthodoxy that Teddy challenged him for the 1912 Republican nomination. When Teddy lost, he founded the Progressive Party, also known as the Bull Moose Party, and mounted the most successful third-party candidacy in American history, winning six states and 88 electoral votes. Taft won only two states and eight electoral votes that year, not even winning his home state. 
When the Republicans returned to power in the 1920s under Warren Harding after Teddy's death in the Wilson administration, they returned to their fetishism of laissez-faire capitalism and high tariffs. These policies bequeathed the prosperous Roaring Twenties, the historically corrupt Harding administration, the stock market crash, and the Great Depression. Bush conservatives still admire Harding successor Calvin Coolidge, whose quiet personality and small government philosophy were noted then and now as antithetical to Teddy Roosevelt's action-oriented presidency. Silent Cal's unrestrained capitalism may have helped create the boom of the 20s, but perhaps the bust as well. When the stock market bubble burst and brought the Great Depression, Republicans avoided reform in favor of tired orthodoxy. President Hoover pushed a seven-decades-old program of tariffs and opposition to federal spending, along with mass deportation of Mexican and Mexican-Americans, that exacerbated the Depression because by now these policies were wholly outdated, just as George W. Bush's were. It is instructive for our story that to deliver the economic medicine needed to confront the Depression, the nation turned not to Orthodox Republicans, but to a Roosevelt, Franklin in this case. Trump has brought America another Great Depression, this one of the moral, psychological, and intellectual kind. His financial recklessness may yet beget an economic crisis as well, as Bush's did after bragging about his tax cuts for six years. Trump and Hoover will both have presided over the discrediting decline of Republican regimes, leaving America searching for an ideology appropriate for the great challenges of the 21st century. Something will follow Trump, but we do not yet know its character. Teddy feared that, quote, the country in the next election would have to choose between an extreme radical like William Jennings Bryan and a Republican reactionary. Today, with socialists gaining in the Democratic Party and moderates abandoning the Republican Party, Teddy's fears echo ominously. The next administration could deliver sorely needed economic medicine, like Teddy and Franklin Roosevelt did, or it could push the failed policies of the past, like George W. Bush and Herbert Hoover. Teddy Roosevelt showed that we need not wait for complete catastrophe before we take the right economic medicine. What our next decade looks like depends on how well we learn from history and on how hard and well we fight. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Demo Crises podcast. And remember, the difference between impossible and possible is one. For more content like this, we'd be grateful if you did at least one of three things. Subscribe, rate us on iTunes, or donate to us on Patreon. Demo Crises is hosted by me, Rob Cohen, and produced and distributed by Goat Rodeo.